This is In Defense of Humanity with Nemo, a.k.a. Nehemiah Johnson, Astris Miller, and our special guest, Dr. Davis. Indeed. Dr. Davis, introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Dr. Davis. I'm the Associate Professor of Biology that focuses on fish and aquatic ecology, and I teach mm-hmm. environmental science and those sorts of things here at the college. Perfect. Today, we're, we're forcing Dr. Davis a little bit out of his normal sphere of influence. We're going to involve biology and science, of course, but we're incorporating religion a bit in this episode. So we're going to talk about the societally imposed dichotomy between science and religion. And we'll start off with the neglect of empiricism or observation-based learning. So, Dr. Davis, do you have any experience with this? With the observation-based learning? Yes. Yeah, well, so, I mean, as a scientist, right, so everything I do is based upon things that I can observe in nature, mm-hmm. right? So anything I talk about in my classes or anything that falls into the realm of science or biology as I do it, um, has to be based on things that we can observe, observable phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? And so if we can't observe it then it, and we can't test it, then it isn't evidence that we can use in part of our scientific process. Uh, you do your thing. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with the neglect of empiricism, it, it represents a, a pivotal time in our societal evolution at which one must reconcile believing in climate change, the, the belief, whereas it's a fact, it exists, and uh, the belief in one's faith, which one also would say is a fact, right? And then there's some people who just can't reconcile it. They have an angst between the two. Uh, what is your input on reconciling faith with scientific law? Basically, climate change is a real thing since we're mm-hmm. jumping into climate change. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, yeah, I agree with you because it, it seems to be a tension there, you know, kind of a push or pull. And you know, what I observe in interactions with people at um, uh, in, in the area, you know, people I know that are churchgoers and things like that, you know, it, it does seem that you, you either have to be all on one side or all on, on the other. You can't adhere to the merits of science and then at the same time ma- maintain your faith, mm-hmm. you know, that if if as a scientist, I promote scientific ideals and in some way I'm weakening my faith, right? Or my mm-hmm. faith is not as strong as everybody else's. Um, and in the same sense, you could also say, well, your faith is really strong. Then I, I can't really completely buy into right. uh, what science is saying. And um, for me, that's been an area where I've, I've kind of between those two extremes, you know, I find myself shifting back and forth mm-hmm. a little bit and always trying to reconcile th- those, those two things. Um, and I think, you know, faith is, um, believing in what you can't see. Yeah. Right. Correct. And, and so in science is all about what you can see and mm-hmm. what is observable. And, and I think you get to the point where you have to be comfortable with both. Yes. You know, like I get to the point where I know that science can explain a lot mm-hmm. of what we see in this world, but at the same time, you, you see things that you just can't explain. You know um that you just feel like like there's something more to it than that and so you're trying to reconcile what you see and what you test and what's physically observable versus these these feelings that you have and the study of your faith of of things that frankly don't make sense in in terms of Absolutely. what we know in science mm. and like just to ask a question like why do you think people uh have a trouble with like regarding science and religion because i know like from i had a conversation with this with like my grandmother because she's an avid church goer and i was talking to her about uh some scientific things we were watching the stargate together with yes yeah. so uh and i was just like why do you have trouble with science and religion and i guess she feels like well you know i've learned all these things these things through church and when i hear these things that you talk to me about when you take your science courses in college it just really boggles my mind. And, you know, some of the things that you say may contradict what I've learned in church. And then, so I ask you being, you know, uh, somebody who is well-versed in science, like, why do you a think- A little bit. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. But why do people have that much trouble with that? Like, I understand it's a, a discipline 
and this is your faith. And like you said, if your faith is strong enough, then it's not much that you could really do to um, mess that up. Yeah. Um, part of it for me, just I go back to education mm-hmm. and almost like fear of the unknown. Right. So, for example, with your grandma, right, what she knows really well is is her church experience and mm-hmm. her faith. Right. And so I would ask her, how comfortable are you with the things of science that may contradict that faith or push back on that? Let's right. say the account of Genesis or or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, right. how familiar are, are you with that? You know, you're talking about the idea of, say, evolution, which is, which is you know, there's always the, right, the church yeah. versus the scientists in terms of evolution. And this is what I try to teach my students. Now, I want you to know about evolutionary theory, regardless of what, what you feel like coming into the class or what you feel coming out of the class in terms of your belief system and, and such. Like, I want you to understand evolutionary theory because at that point, then you it should help you reconcile your feelings a little bit. Right. You know, I, I, I think um, once people hear what evolutionary theory is, then they then they can immediately make the connection of, well, OK, it's not like scientists uh, that teach evolution are basically saying we came from some soup in the mud four billion years ago necessarily you know evolution can be applied not to how life was created but maybe how life changes over time which is something that we can easily observe um in nature you know we can see how bacteria change over time Uh, we know they change because we have to continually discover new and find new antibiotics to treat those bacteria as they evolve and and so you know in in educating people about what that theory actually is and they say okay okay you're not talking about like the garden at all and like disproving that it's like no i'm not not trying to disprove that i'm just trying to tell you about what we can test and see Mm -hmm. in this world from one day to the next and that's it at the end of the day you still get to make your own decision about how you feel and what you believe I would prefer it to be an informed decision as informed as possible rather than just closing your mind off and closing yourself off to anything new that comes in. Absolutely. I've noticed that that ideologues often jump back as far as possible in in observable history to a point at which we, we separated, we become a dyad. So between science and religion, we have Copernicus, Galileo, so they always jump back to a pivotal point in history where and they neglect to to acknowledge the 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 um the attacking of these scientists right mm-hmm. they say oh this is a point at which they got lost right that theories are simply opinions what is your opinion on the what's my theory on that yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well <clears throat> Well, so first off, I'll say that, um, you know, take evolution, for example, um, you know, Charles Darwin is so vilified um, by the church as He's like, a theologist. Yeah, 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 he was, he went to school to study to be a pastor, pretty much, you know, and, and um, the sto- story is that his, his wife was uh, a Christian believer and heavily involved in the faith. And she actually was one of the people that pushed him to publish his book, you know, he sat on it for like, 20 years as he is working on it, but he sat on his idea and didn't publish it because he, he was actually really concerned about upsetting the the church at the time, you know, and, and not out of a feeling of respect, but he just kind of knew this, mm. this thing that he had was going to create a lot of problems. And so he, he was a man of faith. Um, but, but, but uh, anyways, yeah. So, you know, like you said, uh, Asterisk, like, we use the word theory as opinion and people say, well, you know, that's just your theory on things. And, and like, that's how we use it in, in the lingo, right? That mm-hmm. theory is equivalent to opinion. And one of the first things I tell my students is, you know, when we say the word theory in science, we're using it in a completely different way. And we talk about scientific theory. We didn't, we didn't arrive at that just on a whim. You know, mm-hmm. like I have an opinion that the Patriots might win the Super Bowl, but I don't, I have, been, I have no way to test that in yeah, these, right, right. you know, over and over again. But if I have a theory about a scientific principle, 
that means that scientists have come before me, maybe a hundred years or hundreds of years before me, and they've conducted tests using the scientific method, collecting data, testing that data, interpreting the results, drawing conclusions from that. And then when they get done, some other guy comes back behind them and then he says, well, let me test that same thing. And he comes to the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. And then another, some other scientist comes and they test it over and over and over and over again. They always arrive at the general, same general conclusion. Mm-hmm. And so a theory is well, well tested. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not something that scientists accept easily. And in fact, even if we do have a theory, we're open to the idea that that mm-hmm. theory can be disproven with one more piece of additional t- data or, or one more test. You know, we work off the idea of disprovability. We're trying to disprove things rather than prove it. And of course you disprove something long enough. You essentially prove the other. Yeah. You know, so a, sci- a scientific theory carries considerable weight. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. Um, and most, most uh, theologians or religious thinkers feel the same thing about open interpretations of the Bible. So like uh, Thomas Aquinas with his Summa Theologica and uh, Soren Kierkegaard say that even um, St. Augustine said that a good Christian is a Christian who philosophizes about the Bible. You read the word, you take it as the word, right? You need not disbelieve anything. And then you analyze it both literally and metaphorically because there's something deeper. There's a subtextual. Because if it is uh, transubstantiated from the the Godhead themselves, right, himself, then then the word must be deeper than just what's written and what's been transliterated hundreds of times mm-hmm. through a, a mad king who, who happened to want to have it in his language in order to um, uh, convert more people or have people come to his side. Because people, in especially in our area, uh, herald the King James Version, right. and not even the new King James Version, a version which I've talked to people who say it's extremely difficult to interpret. And then they don't learn anything about King James or learn about the some of the reasons why he left the Catholic Church, because he wished to be divorced, and the Catholic Church didn't allow it. And then, or even the other forms of Anglican Church wouldn't allow it, right? With the Protestant Reformation, not all uh, people after just magically became Protestant, like King James was there and he wished to get divorced and the, the current church wouldn't, or the contemporaneous church wouldn't allow him. So people say, oh, he, he became right. Catholics aren't Christian either. And then people herald it because their parents told them this, their, whose parents told them this. And then they, they never analyze the, the word or check the history. They just believe what they're told. And that's the, that's scary. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, history repeats itself. It now. <laughs> yeah, that's what was another thing I was gonna go off of with just talking about my grandmother and stuff. It's just like how religion is. Sometimes we just take it at face value because it's been deeply ingrained in our our family tree for so long, mm-hmm. where it just becomes a part of us, and we never take a step back and analyze it for what it is to really go deeper in the faith. And just from you saying that, it's like it just really opens my mind and maybe the viewers will see that also was like, wow, never really thought of that. And mm-hmm. that, the only reason I thought of that is when I took theories of religion, honestly, just to think of, wow, I've never really taken a step back and said, why am I a Christian? Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. and you just, when you really think about it, it opens up a lot. Yeah. I mean, we're told to read the word, read the word, read the word. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Essentially you're being told study and analyze, study and analyze. Exactly. And in the science part of it would be study, analyze, question. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, so then you question what you read and, and that's okay because then you go back and you study the Bible, Bible even closer yeah. mm. and, and search out those answers to those questions. Yeah. And I would imagine that at the end of the day, you, you might feel even more comfortable in your faith having mm. tackled, yeah. tackle those questions. But Absolutely. I believe that like most people, when you put analyze with religion, it's like you're questioning this higher being and it's this big, scary thing. And when you say it like that, it, it does just like any any principle of of teaching is like if you study it and question it, you get a deeper knowledge of it and you can respect it more. Mm. So that's a big yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, don't Bible scholars, biblical scholars go, I mean, aren't they taught to be analytical? Absolutely. I mean, how many absolutely. times am I, 
you know, are you told like, okay, we know this is who Jesus was and that he was predicted to come. And, and we can go back and look at all these prophecies and those prophecies are used to prove mm. who Jesus was. And it's like, well, you know, they're taking evidence of the old Testament, right? They're applying that evidence to test the hypothesis that Jesus was more than a man. And then, then that evidence is what proves to them that Jesus was more than a man. Indeed. And I'm like, and that's kind of like a scientific approach. It is broken to, down for to the Bible. Indeed. There's, yeah. um, there's often this essentialism as well. Whenever people talk about Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, uh, Torah, Tanakh, uh, they, they say, oh, the primitivity, right? That, and then we can segue quite nicely into the climate change denial mm. where, mm. oh, we're right because we have the newest Testament. You guys are wrong. You're believing the arcane, arcane beliefs before the King of Kings returned, right? So you guys are foolish. But then there's also this essentialism in North America where, oh, Jews are wrong and they're the ones who killed Jesus, right? But then anytime Israel is launched into war, oh, that's God's chosen place. That's his chosen children. Let's protect them. And and there's like this, this sort of trial of faith inside of them, as Kierkegaard would say, where they have to be with the law, but then they also have to accept the word. Like God codex the word with the Ten Commandments and through Jesus, the new, the new laws, right? But also God did deem them the chosen children. So it's like people have a trial of faith. So whenever it suits them best, I, I don't like Jews. But then the very next moment, right. oh, they're going to war. Those those are our people. We right. have to protect them. And, and and the same thing happens with the with the climate change denial, where where people are like, oh, let's America for Americans. And then once we get back to the home front, we have these party line affiliations. And it's like, oh, environmentalism, ah, it doesn't matter. Jesus is coming back. It's regardless. Right. <laughs> yeah, the the idea that Jesus will come back and save us from everything that we've done. Um, like I'm as a Christian, I'm all for Jesus coming back. You know, yeah. like don't get me wrong. Like if he comes back soon, then climate change won't be an issue. Mm -hmm. But you know, doesn't the Bible tell us that none of us can know? Yeah. Like nobody knows. So he could come back tomorrow, uh, or he could come back a thousand years from now, Indeed. or a hundred years from now. There's gonna be none of us left. <laughs> but when we, if you believe climate change, and we, as as a legit. Uh, study of science with supported by evidence uh and things are going to get bad not too in too distant far future so mm -hmm. um you know if he's coming he needs to come soon indeed but then i've been told um and i've read it myself we don't we don't uh we don't know the plans of god uh we don't know the will of god even though we can try to figure that out you know mm -hmm. like recently uh you know when a, a particular spokesperson person for the president <clears throat> said that uh you know god put him as president it's like you don't know that like yeah, none of us knows yeah, yeah. god like you can't pick uh we, yeah yeah we can we can interpret what we can but we don't and so and and then you know and god tells us to take care of the earth in genesis i, I, I remember stewards, that stewards of the earth yeah yeah and the political lines always gets me because um Republicans are conservatives, right? Yeah. So why aren't they for conservation? That's that is the greatest <laughs> question. You no, know, I wonder about people just wanting to cherry pick information that just speaks that they use that information to reinforce how Absolutely. they feel simply because they know that that's what's going to make them feel good and that's what's easiest. But it's so hard to be challenged, mm. you know. And like, I can say that as a PhD and feel like, oh, well, you know, I must be all knowledgeable because I went to school for, mm -hmm. you know, eight years or whatever it was and got a piece of paper. Um, but I myself, I want to be challenged too, right? Yeah. And what I've learned is discernment of information and openness of information. So, you know, although I fully agree with the 99% of other climate scientists, uh, well, I'm not a climate scientist, so I agree with 99% of climate scientists mm -hmm. that climate change is happening yes and that people are at least in some way responsible for it um i'm fully open to any new information that comes in that might challenge that because 
for me, it's not a belief. Yeah. Right. I don't believe in climate change. I interpret the data yes. on the subject. And then um, as a scientist, I'm forced to go with the conclusions that come from that data. Mm -hmm. If new data comes on that says, you know, satellites show that there's no warming and trees are sucking up carbon dioxide at a faster rate than we can produce it. Indeed. No problem. Then it's like, okay, we'll just teach something else. Indeed. You know? I'm I'm glad you you said that. Like if one day this just happened, the trees started sucking up carbon. Cause <laughs> this is a real this is a real possibility, right? Whenever mm -hmm. we say theories, we're not we're not talking about opinions, but like observable evidence over the course of of many cycles, right? Because Linnaeus is the father of the binomial nomenclature. Mm -hmm. So we, we can match species. Sometimes it's hard to predict um, where they actually fall in a clad or a family. Whatnot. Right, right. Um, and then I would say Kierkegaard is the father of, uh, of scientific uh, religiosity or scientific theologism, where you uh, do the same thing, where you go for the binomial and then you find it through the, through the trial of faith, the double movement, right? And then we get to this point at which science and and faith sort of converge, not attack each other, but this point where there's a brilliant book called The Three-Body Problem. What if there was in space, I hate saying what ifs, but <laughs> in space, there's a tri, uh, like a triaxial star system. So we have a binary star system all the time. In theory, a trinary star system is, is a real thing as well. But what if in this space, right, time and space are being warped to the point at which physics no longer exists or no longer is um, succinct with the rest of physics as we understand it. Because in, in theory, right, this is not scientific theory, but in, in like, let's say, whenever, whenever uh, you hear of students getting high, they always say, what if your color is not my color? And then mm -hmm. they, they, they sound foolish. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, sort of scientifically, <laughs> it's like, that's not the bigger picture. What if your physics is not my physics? And in the three-body problem, what if time and space are sort of suspended and warped? And that would mean everything we recognize, gravity is not a law, right? That, that gravity just happens to have happened the same way for all of human history. And one day, what if it just turned off like that? And that would mean gravity is not a law. Gravity simply we got lucky for our entire uh societal and evolutionary history we got lucky that we got to this point in order to ask this question mm -hmm. and then, right mm -hmm. after we ask this question we find out oh no <laughs> <laughs> so well, i'm all for gravity staying so so the, the three-body problem with the the trees just magically sucking up carbon right i know you know this you know this mm -hmm. we, we all know this trees do absorb carbon right. but it doesn't really help whatever we're slashing and burning forests to produce carbon right well so that's a good example of how science is used right because you know you can make the argument that as the uh, earth gets warmer and and such shouldn't there be more trees so they should suck up more carbon mm. so we should be okay all right let's roll with that idea okay let's test that mm -hmm. so do we have historical evidence on how much photosynthesis occurs worldwide can we measure that yeah we've got billions of dollars worth of satellites that our government has put into the atmosphere and we can actually measure how much photosynthesis mm -hmm. is taking place by all the plants on on earth right and so we can look at that and how it changes as carbon dioxide has increased. Mm -hmm. What we find is that once we've hit a point where actually there's there's too much carbon dioxide that somehow, somehow through drought and other things that also go along with climate change, mm -hmm. that the ability of the plants to take up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is actually going down. Yeah. Right. So like if you have an, an, you know, a, an argument that you want to put forth. Uh, that relates to some sort of scientific principle and you and you say, well, according to my party line or according to my family history and what I've been told and I've accepted that and whatever, like I think climate change isn't an issue. We don't have to worry about it because of X, Y, Z. Then what scientists do is say, okay, let's test that out. And, and it's either going to fall one way or the other. So like the idea of like all oh, the plants will take care of all the carbon dioxide for us. We've tested that out and the answer seems to be no, it's not. 
you know, we're going to have to do something else along, along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And we mentioned party line affiliations again. Mm. We're going to have it. We're going to have to talk about the liberal agenda. Let's just, let's get into it. Let's do it. So can, I don't want to say conservatives, but we're going to be honest. Most of the time it's conservatives on, um, it's on the party platform. You can look it up. (laughs) Indeed. will say that, uh, climate change is a liberal agenda that there's funding from somewhere. I don't know where the funding's coming from, but the largest companies from China Oil to ExxonMobil, I think the five largest companies control most of the world's um, expenditures and incoming profits are oil companies. So logically speaking, then the conservative platform would have far more um, evidence with the scare quotes, evidence, Mm -hmm to uh, back up because they'd have plenty of scientists on on payroll, just paying them, paying them. And that's probably where the one to 2% come from who are, who are uh, denying climate change. But there's some upstanding scientists who are refusing to accept these payoffs, at least. Yeah, and that, and the thing, so, and this is something I tell my students all the time. If you come to my class and you bring a source or a piece of paper, or, you know, a research paper you found or something, and you're going to put it up there and say, well, you know, so-and-so said this about climate change. That disagrees with this other thing. I will all, always ask them, uh, who paid for that study? Mm. What do you know about the author? Because I could, I could walk into my office, give me five minutes. I can find you five to 10 papers by some scientist somewhere published in probably not a climate scientist journal, by the way, <laughs> like, I've, you know, there's a classic one I use. It's from the journal of nutrition and it's this climate okay. change study. Nutrition. Mm. Like what does that mm. have to do with it? Right. Mm, that's, uh, and, that's and nice. like, if you, you can always trace these funding sources um, and see like, Oh, okay. Their money's coming from this group, which is, as you pointed out, ironic because Whenever there's, say, a group of scientists publishing that say climate change is happening and all this sort of thing, what what is the attack? The attack is like, well, that's being funded by all these people and they're being paid to say this. Yeah. You know, so you have like the conservative uh, uh, saying that, well, those studies are being funded to to uh, to pay scientists to say mm-hmm. that, and at the same time, they know full and well that they are also paying people to publish on the other side. And so it's like politics isn't real. It's yeah. just a game. Indeed. No. And it's a game that's that's used to confuse people, I think on purpose mm-hmm. to control and manipulate people. Absolutely. Um and and that's what concerns me so much because science is supposed to be not that it is because we're people, we're fallible. Mm-hmm. Um but science is supposed to be the, a process that's above all that. You know, it's supposed to be as much as possible a process that's unbiased. Yes, you're right. Yeah, it's unbiased. And we're, you know, we're we're pursuing knowledge for the sake of the pers- pursuit uh, mm-hmm. because we're curious. And because for the most part, there's an end game where we think it's going to contribute to the well-being of society. And so when politics starts messing with science or, or um, delegitimizing science, for the sake of promoting their own agenda, um, I mean that ticks me off. It ticks me off when you can when you can look at science and question whether it's fact. When indeed there's a whole experimental process and a peer review process right. that tries tries to move all that stuff out of the way. That now we're just able to kind of lob these grenades in there mm-hmm. and just blow it all up. And you know, unless you're very diligent and you're 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 tracing that information and you can be easily fooled by, you know, whatever the, uh, the headline is on the latest Facebook story or, or whatever else that some friend shared. Right. And then just to always ask this in our podcast, you know, the title of our, I mean, the title of our podcast is in defense of humanity. Right. So if you were Dr. Davis, if you were given a, if you had, immense amount of money unlimited amount of money to... i do just don't tell anybody <laughs> <laughs> all right so if you, you do you have this money and then you have this limited amount of money to i guess re-legitimize science in a way that anybody can 
simply look at these facts that these scientists go through a, a, a rigorous progress of making it factual, how would you go about it? Because I know me with being business and we talk about politics and pushing policies, a lot of politicians will use scientific facts. And just like anything with the Bible or anything will take a certain part that fits their agenda, mm-hmm. fits it into mm-hmm. their uh, policy agenda and makes it makes it look so factual because it's like, well, it's science. Absolutely. So yeah. how can I go against science? Yeah. So how would you, you know, kind of fix that to defend humanity? Yeah, that's so that's an ex- excellent question that I don't think I'm quite have the answer to. But if I come <laughs> up with a really good answer, you'll see me running for office soon. Yeah, um, Dr. Davis. Yeah, like that. that the cherry picking of data is so easy to do, right? Right. Because, and and I'll show this to my uh, environmental science class, because they're mostly like business majors and people are going to go do other things, right? Yeah, yeah. So I want them to be able to like, for themselves, be able to interpret data and see like the fake when yes. it's sh- right, shown right, them. Right. But like, I can show you a graph of, um, of uh, glaciers or melting ice or something like that. And I could show you a graph that has some ups and downs in it, but the general trend of the line is say going down. Right. So mm-hmm. like, Oh, okay. The general trend over the last hundred years is that ice is decreasing, but you know, I can find last year where it increased by 2%. Indeed. Right. But it was colder last summer. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like I, you know, so you can very much like I could stand up on the, uh, con- uh, on the floor of Congress as a, uh, you know, congressman and say, you know, all this blah, blah, blah and stuff about climate change, you know, ice actually increased 2% last year and mm-hmm. even higher in some random glacier in the middle of Norway, you know, yeah, and it's yeah, like, yeah. okay, you know, like <laughs> you, you just totally cherry pick that. But, um, you know, so, so I think first off it's every individual, I think has their own responsibility to be careful of what they share correct, and what, and, what they put out there for other people. Right. right? And so like, I am that guy that will call out my friends on Facebook when they share something that is, Mm. you know, fake. I'll be like, this story is fake. And then they're like, why'd you have to do that? Um, But beyond that money, money is needed in science to do science. Right. So how do you ensure that it's clean money, so to speak, Mm. right? That the money isn't given to somebody with an agenda. Um, And, and I'm all for, um, you know, because we we have the internet at our at our foot, like we didn't have before. Like all data should be completely like completely accessible to the general yeah. public. Like it, you should be required if you're gonna like publish a paper. You got, you should be required to share your entire data set so anybody could go through that and go, yep, that's true. Absolutely, you know. Um, but. Uh, getting lobbying out of science, getting lobbying out of Washington, mm. you know, paying people to say certain things or to feel a certain way or to trick people in a certain way, have major issues yeah. with, with that, you know? Yeah. Um, and that goes beyond the scope of science. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I need money to do my work. Indeed. You know, and and there can be pressure put on you to to find a certain finding. Mm. Um, yeah. And and you know, people are not above, you know, I could sit here all day and say, I'm above that. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, you know, if somebody came in and offered Gave me enough money, money and said, yeah. you know, you know, kind of how you're going to, how this is going to go. Right. I, I would, I would like to say, it's like, get out of here, you know, yeah, get out of yeah, here. With of your, course, anybody get out, would. Get, anybody get out of here with your million dollars. Yeah. Indeed, but, on the, on the other hand, I got bills. Right. You know, you know? so, you know, so, yeah. like, uh, getting money out of out of out of science in in a way that scientists feel free to report and 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 publish with without feeling like that they have to find a certain way or or publish a certain way um would be great but you know and i don't know in this in this social media age how you get more responsible sharing because yeah i mean i mean there are think tanks that are conservative think tanks and they can publish. I I can get you a book right in my office right now. It's like, uh, you know, why scientists disagree on climate change. And Mm. unless you looked up the think tank, then you, it's, it's presented in a way and they market it to church. They, they market it to churches and other things like that to get back to your religion. Like they, they feel like we've got this book on climate denial. What is the part of the population that this will, will work best on? Uh-huh. churches because it probably aligns with their ideology a little bit yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. 
And now what do you do? It's, 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 yeah, yeah, because if they're paid by conservative lobbyists, right, then it's oftentimes the, they will market it to churches, just like you said, like you led perfectly into this. But uh, let me just say, just for balance, mm. like, let's say the, the, the left is doing that. Absolutely. They need to stop doing that too. Right. Yeah. You know? And there's no doubt that there are people yeah. on the left doing they're like they're, they're equally doing it. If, if everyone could just separate, it would, it, if easy. we could just dissemble, until it'd be it'd be perfect but yeah. unfortunately in thought it's not gonna happen <laughs> right. um the thing is whenever we have this situation where people are conservative and typically right conservatives happen to be christian then we have oh donald trump was put into office because god wanted it to be so because i'm a conservative all the conservatives i know are christian Donald Trump is not Christian, all right? The, these climate denial scientists, mm -hmm. scientists who are proponents of climate change denial are, are doing this. And then I'm given it by my conservative uh, representative. I'm a constituent of. Uh, so this, I guess the, the, this, uh, these doing backflips in one's head happen where, oh, if this scientist is paid by my representative, who's a Christian and a conservative, this scientist must also be a Christian, and they have somehow combined science and Christianity in a way, and then gotten to the truth yeah. that we have nothing to do because God is the highest, and he is the only influence onto this. So this scientist must be Christian whenever they don't recognize that this scientist is probably not Christian and is just taking a fat paycheck. Yeah, They, they, they have to reconcile. Mm -hmm. Like, again, you, you it, people, people who don't philosophize, who don't think courageously can't have the double movement they feign or fake a double movement where they exist in faith right and then the, their criticism is a circle right their the criticism goes out and brings it all the way back until the beginning they have a circular argument they they don't they don't actually reach for anything these people you talk to them whenever they're 25 and though they have experience with knowledge, experiential knowledge, right? Technically wisdom, you ask them the same question, somehow you're gonna receive the same answer as you did 20 years before. And that's how you know that they have absolutely no philosophizing, that they are potentially the same people who, who uh, would think these scientists are magically Christian because somehow party line affiliation, conservatives are all Christian. And also Donald Trump must be a Christian it's put in by God. It always has to fall back to the the state of comfortability, the sphere of influence. Otherwise, the 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 angst, right? Kierkegaard taught like we use this word in English and comes from the Danish Jamfektelse. It's the point at which we have the fear and trembling before the face of God, so to speak. Whenever we we don't know how to deal with it, it's like it's it's like seeing death in front of you. You can't deal with it. So what do you do? You either regress or you snap or you uh, develop, you you progress. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with developing and progressing, right? <laughs> Indeed. I don't know. Uh, so <clears throat> I, would, I, would, I would be curious what the 25-year-old uh, me would say. Yeah. Now, you know, because I think, I think he would say something totally different. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that it's probably my involvement in academia and at a small liberal arts college, you know, that has given me perspective mm -hmm. and has challenged me to think and to assess and evaluate um, how I feel and how I put like, my Christianity together with my science. And I've come to a place where I'm very comfortable, yeah, you know, yeah. with it. Right. Like, and it, and it's not the same place that everybody is going to arrive at. Of course. Right. They're going to have it. They, they might put those two things together in, in a different way. Um, but on a daily basis, I am, I'm paid to, to analyze and to try to think critically about things. And mm -hmm. I'm in an environment that's surrounded by students asking me hard questions and say, well, how do you feel about this? I'm in an environment where, you know, I get to, sit in on religion talks or talk to philosophy professors and, you know, learn things that are way outside 
you know, mm-hmm. kind of my original sphere, you know, mm-hmm. outside of my bubble. And it that's what's allowed me to to kind of grow, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I think it says a lot about again, going back to just education, you, you know, allowing allowing that to keep the wheels turning, you know, open up the thought processes and feeling more and more comfortable with letting things in that I would previously have blocked. Yeah. You know, no, I got to block that because I'm really comfortable with my faith and how I feel about this. And it all makes sense to me. I'm going to block anything that's going to cause any confusion and, and kind of corrupt what I've been comfortable with. And now like I want to embrace the uncomfortable. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to backtrack a little bit Mm. to, to prove some of the things that you've said. I know we don't have to prove anything, but the, our conversation is not theoretical. This is not uh, opinionated. Whenever Dr. Davis was talking about uh, being able to easily publish an article, I can go right now, mm-hmm. log in on my ResearchGate account, post one of the papers that I wrote, get it peer-reviewed by professors that follow me, right? I could technically pay someone to peer-review it, right? And then it's been peer-reviewed submit it to Rutledge or um, any number of databases, get it approved on there because sometimes things just slip through the cracks. Right. And then boom, I just posted uh, a story (coughs) about how cats are eating babies. Mm -hmm. And then with fake resources, fake, fake citations, and then boom, someone reads it, uses it for their paper. And their professor is like, uh, (laughs) it it happens all the time. You know, it's, it's not an abnormal thing, you know, to have something published that's a uh, complete fake. One of the more interesting things I've read, I think sometime last year, no, I think I heard it on like NPR or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I forgot what the term was, but it was like a group of guys that basically tried to like hack the scientific process. And so they, they wrote all these fake papers, like 20 mm-hmm. of them, and they submitted them to different journals to see if they could get them published. And um, they were successful in like 13 out of the 20. And, um, and, and this is not to pick on um, like gender studies as a field. It's it's just, this is what I remember, but they, they like, they were able to get like four papers in the field of gender studies published and Mm. like, and it was stuff that just made no sense. Yeah. You know? And so they were kind of speaking to the idea, like if you want to corrupt this process, you can, but like the true peer reviewed process is is really interesting because it's anonymous like if i when i publish a paper and i send it out i can i can actually some journals let you suggest like an expert in the field to review it but you don't know if that's the person that looked at it yeah you know the the editor of the journal their job is to go find those experts so like when i write a paper on um like i study this weird fish called the sickle fin red horse that Mm -hmm. i find is awesome like there's few people that a really in-depth knowledge of it. Mm-hmm. But if if I send that paper out to peer review, guess who's going to look at it? Like those few people who have studied that mm-hmm. fish as well and know everything in the world about it. So if I've made a wrong conclusion or I've tried to fake something, they're going to be like, they're going to figure that out, figure that out and say like this this is so against the grain of what we know. Yeah. And and so like even with like climate science, right? Who's looking at those papers? Yeah, the foremost client, uh, climate scientists with with between them probably for a hundred years of climate science mm-hmm. exper- experience. You know, you're not just sending out to somebody yeah, to yeah. review. You know, like I would never review a paper on climate scientists. Why? Because I'm an aquatic ecologist, fisheries biologist. What yeah. I have no business. Like I know enough about it that I can teach it in environmental science class and mm. undergo the principles, but I don't research it. Like I don't understand every nook and cranny of it. Yes. But those people do, you know, and then you look at like, if somebody ever says, well, you know, it's only published in the journal science or the journal <laughs> nature. Like those are the two top journals in the world. Like yeah. everybody reads those. So even if it gets published and it's, and it's a bunch of BS, somebody that's reading that is going to figure it out and then they're going to have to retract that article yeah i I mean it's supposed to be a self-correcting process such that it's really hard to fake absolutely so to say like you know science is fake 
whatever. Fake news. <laughs> Fake news. That's it. Dr. Davis, you have anything further? I'm just glad my voice hold, held out for this one. Yeah, it was a big improvement from Friday. <laughs> Indeed. It's yeah. not looking so good. So. No, man, this, this has been great. I, I appreciate the opportunity to Perfect. Oh, chat with you for, guys. And oh, yeah. You. Thank you so much. Update for the viewers. The, the Super Bowl, it is 3-3 right now. Um, it's a shootout. Yeah, it is. Wow. It's in the fourth quarter right now. It is. So. Excellent. Well, one final thing. Let's uh, hear a little bit about the fish that you were just talking about. We yeah, all, that's pretty we interesting. All, okay. We all like ichthyology. So, uh, yeah, ichthyology, scientific study of fish. Indeed. So, viewers, listeners, actually, if you would like to leave, the conversation about climate change denial is finished. It's about to get better. It's about, it's to, get about better. to get far better. Dr. <laughs> Davis is going into his field, and it starts now. Um, yeah, so I, of course, being located up here, you know, I study fish that are nearby and, um, I study this one species that I kind of, when I came here, I started looking around and saying like, what are the opportunities? Uh, and I came from Tennessee where I worked with rare and endangered, endangered fish. And so naturally when I got to Young Harris, I started thinking about, well, is there anything rare and endangered around here? Cause maybe that's what I'm qualified to study. And I found out like uh, Brasstown Creek, which, you know, Corn Creek on campus runs yeah. like behind Enrico's. It, it runs right into Brasstown Creek. So it's, you know, less than a mile from campus. It, is, it has this fish in it um, called the Sicklefin Red Horse. And it's a fish that actually spends most of its life living downstream. Mm. And so like that Brasstown Creek flows north, actually, to like Murphy, North Carolina and stuff. Um, and that's where the fish hangs out. But this fish, uh, when it in the spring, it actually migrates upstream to spawn a lot like salmon, and it and it swims all the way up into Georgia and wow. into Brasstown Creek, and so when I got here, I was like, man, that'd be interesting to study. Figured out that nobody's really studied it, nobody knew a lot about it, mm. and so I thought, well, this is a really good opportunity for like students to do something that isn't like come do a biology research project, and we're gonna study fruit flies like everybody oh, yeah. else like yeah let's do something like unique and on the forefront um Absolutely. that that you could go to conferences and publish and um and for me would be new and so i got into this and now i work with georgia dnr on a project to study this fish i got back last week from a meeting in Asheville, and we we're talking about it was like us and georgia and, and their resources dnr like north carolina people and Duke Energy and all these people, like we all come together and we talk about like what can we do to con conserve this fish and what research is needed. And then we kind of like form a strategic plan and and then we go execute the plan. And uh, so we formed our plan last week and mm -hmm. then this fish swims upstream starting in April and we go out and we execute the plan. And what we do is um, I have uh, through Georgia DNR, like that, they actually have it, but I house the equipment in the lab here but we put these antennas along the bottom of the stream. Okay. And like, it's just like a cable that goes all the way across the bottom of the stream. And we wow. put it in like a couple different locations. And then we catch all these fish when they spawn and we insert a tag in them. Okay. That tag has a unique frequency. So like we can track individual fish movements. Oh, okay. It's like a barcode, right? So we catch yeah. a fish, we scan it and then, the, and it tells us like what fish this is. Mm -hmm. And so um, what we're doing now is like, I can, I can uh, track that fish. So when the fish swims over the antenna in the stream, the mm -hmm. antenna records it and saves it in a, a you know, data recording box. It's powered um, this year will be powered by solar power. Um, and then we go and we download the data. And then I have a student right now and she's looking at like, when do these fish swim into Georgia? How long do they stay and spawn? Are they male? Are they female? And then they leave when did they leave so how long were they here and so we're we're kind of like learning all this information about their migration and how that might affect you know their spawning behaviors and things like that and so like we found that males arrive first so they stop start their spawning migration first like so i figure it's like you know 
if you go to the bar or a club or whatever, you know, the it's dudes like, always come first. Yeah. Let's get there first, man, <laughs> before the ladies show up and stake out our spot and all yeah. that sort of stuff. And so they, I guess they come up and then I'm speculating at this point that they, that they kind of, um, you know, maybe figure out like where's the best breeding locations. So let's mm. get the lay of the land. And then the females come up and like the females only stay like for like 10 days or so. Mm-hmm. And so I guess spawning happens. Yes. And they leave and they go downstream and then the males stay behind. And why do they stay behind? I don't know. Mm. And so like, so we think it's like recovery period. Okay. Like because they're, if they were to spend all the energy then migrating back downstream, they might die. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, okay, let's hang out and just rest. Like that was really intense. We're going to rest and recover and that minimizes our chances of dying. And then they go back downstream. Okay. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty neat. Like which you can, you can go and like, you can, they're big fish. They're like over a foot long. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you can, you can look at them and like they change colors. They get these bumps on their bodies and they look kind of ugly, but pretty at the same time. Um, but what they do is uh, it, it, they have like all these dynamics that go on, which, you know, if a student is interesting, you want to do something really out there like their courtship rituals we don't understand mm. too much but like a female will come up and like get in position and then like males will kind of start swimming around her and then they might drop off and you know you'll see like one female with like five males behind her downstream and then like two males will swim up beside her and they'll do the spawning act and then they then they might drop back and some others come up and sometimes they like you'll see them not like direct combat because some people say maybe they don't do combat, but I've seen fish get really angry with each other, mm-hmm. you know, like fighting over the female. And it's pretty interesting to watch them like swim up and like just cut each other off. Like one male will start swimming up the female and another one will run up and like, mm-hmm. you know, I imagine mm-hmm. it's that you see the girl across the room, right? You're like, yeah. I'm going to walk over there and say hi to her and on your way walking up there. Some dude like cuts in front of yeah. you and you're like, Oh man, yeah. you know, that's my shot. You know? Yeah. So, you know, like for a fish, they do pretty interesting things, but it's a fish that was gonna, if it was not for all these people getting together, they were going to list it as um, a threatened or endangered species, Okay. Um, which triggers like money mm-hmm. to be released to conserve the species. But you have these people that came together and said, let's put our money at the table here and do something before we even get to that point. Yeah. And so now we're learning all this stuff about this fish. And, um, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, there's a good, story to it but um you know climate change perhaps being real uh what i'm interested in in the next 10 years um is seeing how stream temperatures change with climate change okay because we think the fish migration is cued by mm. water temperature and so like if the water temperature gets hotter early early they migrate earlier and who knows like maybe they migrate before they've got stored up enough energy to do the migration. And they start dying. Yeah. Or they migrate. And when they migrate, they migrate at a time when there's some food available to help them along the way. And maybe they migrate before that food becomes available. Okay. You know, so like that's kind of like in terms of climate change ecology, that's what people are looking at. Like the match between like what species do and when their habitat is available or their, their food is available. Mm-hmm. And and I'll be interested to see how that um, how that interacts and changes ten years down the road and things like that. So okay, yeah, do a lot of other things, but that's what I do right now. Cool. So, so I have two questions about this, yeah. and one slightly unrelated question, and then I think we're good. Okay. So first, we we decided to look up a picture of this because you are far more. Tell me, it's not a picture of me that showed up on the Google search. Uh, it is not. No, no, not. <laughs> you got lucky. You got one of these days. <laughs> you will. One of these days. Um, so is this a carp species? A species of carp? It's um it looks very similar to yeah. a carp. Yeah, and most does. uh most people actually think they're carp. In fact, uh locally when people hear what I do, they'll ask me like, What's with the carp in the stream? And I'll tell them like it's actually mm-hmm. a red horse, which is a type of sucker. Okay. Um, like a carp is a really big minnow. So they're actually yes. closely related. Carp are, are very closely related to like small minnows. Mm. Um, but this is uh, kind of like the, the family of minnows, like suckers are like a side branch off of that. Yeah. So they are kind of related, but like this, this fish would be more closely related to, I don't know. Um, 
I could name a whole bunch of species that nobody's probably familiar with, but Indeed. like buffalo fish or something. Okay, like I'm familiar. That. I'm familiar. Yeah, like lo- these large river suckers, but they all have the mouth that's at yeah, the bottom. Yeah, they absolutely. walk, they go around, swim around, sucking things, sucking algae, yeah, 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 and stuff like that. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that I didn't say yeah. it was a carp instead of like a related species, but not underneath. Yeah, they the call carp. it the sickle fin because if it's, it's top fin, it's dorsal yeah, fin. Yeah, yeah. It, it actually resembles like the sickle, like death is known for carrying, you yeah, know? Yeah. And that's how it's got its name. And the Cherokee, they actually um, were familiar with this fish a long time ago. Um, and they used to, like the Cherokee Nation used to host their, like, over, um, like their big tribal gatherings mm-hmm. in Western North Carolina, or like around the town of Cherokee, North mm-hmm. Carolina, not too far from here. And they always held it in the spring. And that was when all these red horses migrated and they were really easy to capture. And so they would catch all these fish and then like smoke them and stuff like that. And they would have their big tribal celebrations and there would be enough food to support thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was really, it was a really important. And there are other red horse species besides the sickle thin red horse in the area. But like the whole group was really important to the Cherokee culture. And um, I think they named it, uh, it was named Jehingla. Is what they called it, okay. and uh, it. I think it meant like um, red feather waving or feather waving because this big fish is in like water that's six inches deep, and you can see the fin, the long sickle shaped fin sticking out of the water and waving back and forth mm-hmm. like a feather waving, and so okay. um, the, that's what the Cherokee people called it. So wow. it, it has this really interesting history that goes along with it. Perfect, so. and then okay, I'm trying to accrue all the knowledge of biology I've gathered in four years, all f- like three or four classes I've taken. Um, An abundance of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, so there are a few ways of finding out the age of a fish, depending mm-hmm. on species, inner ear bone and mm-hmm. um, rays, fin rays. Yeah. Yep. Uh, one is lethal. The other is not. Yeah. Yeah. The inner ear is lethal. Yes. And yes. do you ever test the age of, uh, sickle fin red horse absolutely that's a that's a great question um we actually did a three-year study mm-hmm. um that just finished not last year but the year before we aged uh sickle fin red horse using their fin rays okay and we used a non-lethal technique because we didn't want to kill a fish absolutely. that there's not a lot of um and so yeah we we finished that and uh one of these days i'm maybe this summer gonna finish writing that up and publish it i had uh a lot of students helped me with that. You know, shout out to Caroline Cox if you're listening. Indeed. Kaylin Crosley and everybody else who's uh who's worked on that. And um yeah, yeah. How how old do you think a fish like that would be? Uh a foot. Um fish some species grow their whole life. I'm only familiar with cichlids. Uh maybe five, ten. Yeah, so the oldest one that we documented is is 21 years old 21 yeah okay yeah so it's really slow growing fish i always tell students like you know that fish might be older than you yeah (laughs) wow that's interesting yeah yeah it's very interesting and then third question slightly unrelated but i'm sure you got it um so oftentimes i'll talk with other uh, fellow students classmates about whether nature has an intrinsic value so they'll oftentimes be like but why do mosquitoes exist? They're completely unnecessary. I hate them because, you know, it, it affects us directly. And right. we have the, the the navience, the sentience to say, I don't like that. That's too close to me. And then we think of uh, nature as a pyramid where we're at the top. Somehow we achieve the apex because we can use right. guns and cars right. and cell phones. <laughs> and somehow lions are below us, even though mm-hmm. I'm guarantee if I release a student into the Serengeti, we're going <laughs> to find out. <laughs> And then somehow mosquitoes well, you, yeah. are, are the lowest yeah. rung. You could you could argue that we're above lions because we at one time did exist on the Serengeti, and somehow we have um, we adapted to the point yeah. that now we are do have dominion over mm-hmm. lions. So maybe we did win. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Um, I I fully believe in the you know the, the intrinsic value of of nature is just as important. In, say like the utilitarian value of nature right that uh so the idea that nature is is only important or or species or plant or whatever is only important to us if we can discover utility for it yeah, and yeah. use it in some way of our how we've constructed society right mm-hmm. so to say like 
um, a plant is only good if we can eat it yeah. or figure out a medicine that's um, derived from it, right? Um, but if a flower is beautiful, like it has no purpose if we can't use it, well, like that that flower has an aesthetic value to it. It's just yeah. the fact that it's beautiful and it made me feel a certain way is important. But then like the truly intrinsic value would be that that flower is not just beautiful, but that flower exists and therefore it has the right to exist. Absolutely. And who, am I, who are we to um, control something else's right to exist? Yes. Right. right. Um, because we wouldn't say like, so the, conser- the conservative argument would be um, <laughs> like, who are you to say to, to control the right over a baby to exist and unborn child to exist? Uh, like, of course. Of uh, course. The regression. I just, I just went there, didn't I? Um, but like, <laughs> You know, like, no, that plant has the right to exist, even if it's a weed and it grows in my yard. And I don't like that it's not Bermuda grass like mm-hmm. everything else. Um, but like that whole intrinsic value. I mean, there's lots of studies out there that look at the intrinsic value of nature. You know, like, why is it that rehab facilities are now increasingly being located out in camps and out in nature and things like that? Mm-hmm. You know, like, why do you take um, why do you establish a, a mental health facility? you know, and make sure that like, like there's a garden there and uh, courtyards in these, like these green spaces, because like somehow like it has this um, intrinsic value to us that we feel comfortable in it. And like, it's probably wired in our DNA. We evolved alongside it. We can't separate ourselves from it. Right. I mean, um, not that I do a lot of running and stuff like that, but like when you run or when you work out, you know, Mm your body releases all these endorphins after like if you just have a real solid run right or or you just go to the rec center and you just get a really good workout like your body releases all these endorphins later like why is that right mm-hmm. well maybe you went through just a stressful event you were being chased by a lion and like <laughs> you just need that yeah um but like our b- body's programmed like make us feel good about that that event that we just went through right this challenging event which we probably previously experienced in nature you know so mm-hmm. yeah i'm because because i've studied rare fish that nobody cares about i'm always arguing that the intrinsic value of nature um, mm-hmm. but you know i think everything has a purpose for being here yeah whether we understand the interaction it has with nature or yeah, not yeah. um just because we don't know the ecology doesn't mean that we should just throw it out absolutely and, and so like i always argue like for like again endangered species like why should we care about the three line you know stickleback fish thing you've never heard of mm-hmm. like maybe it does something that's pretty important that we don't know about but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know if you're building a house like consider like our ecosystem that we thrive in that we we benefit from that must exist for us to exist what if you took out um just a two by four from the walls of that house indeed house probably stand you know yeah. take out some more if it's not a load-bearing wall probably stands start taking out some two by fours from a load-bearing wall see how many you could take out of where your house falls down yeah and it's the same analogy with ecosystems how many species can we remove and there be no really major effect yeah but at some point you might take out a few critical things that all breaks down Mm. not that the ecosystem would entirely disappear but it won't be as productive maybe it doesn't make as much food as we need to survive you know like so so from that perspective you could argue that and it, it has value species have value no matter how you look at it intrinsically ecosystem services aesthetically utility so anyways absolutely and there's the the unfortunate and and easy uh realization that one could make that there's most certainly one species that if one species somehow stopped existing and all evidence of this species were to uh disappear overnight with near certainty uh the environment would be able to easily bounce back would be humans if we remove since we have prided ourselves so much on the separation from the the natural order that we are no longer stewards but we are the the dominators right we have the dominion our home that we have control of um if we were to sort of like suspend the existence of humans for 100 years and then come back 
a few species would go extinct as as which naturally happens but certainly not upwards of like 90 100 species a day mm-hmm. with rainforest mm-hmm. destruction and i i the, like, the extinction rate <laughs> wouldn't be as great if we were gone indeed than as when we were been when we are present yeah yeah and yeah. the panda the panda would go extinct <coughs> un- unfortunately i mean yeah for, for us because it's it's a glamour animal it's cute right so the panda would go extinct but the other glamour animals like uh dolphins dolphins were sustainable until we were introduced with all these oil spills and and uh hunting in some places and uh propellers cutting manatees as well sure sure so like these glamour animals that we 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 are uh, pundits of, oh, we must protect them. In reality, though, it's a good thing that we're trying to protect them as as individuals, as a mass. Most of them we could have easily solved by not getting involved. Yeah, yeah, and you know, to be to be fair, is is uh, we we have only until recently understood our role in mm-hmm. the environment. Absolutely. And, and even the field of ecology was, you know, it dawned in like the 1950s. Was, that was after a lot of damage had been done. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I wonder, like, if we had the self-awareness earlier, then you know, what things would look like. You know, like, it's easy to get in these conversations and paint humans in, like, a really negative perspective. Yes. Right? But then we also have to understand like a lot of this information we're just still learning is still coming in Mm -hmm. and so the question now i think becomes what do we do with this information as we discover it yeah yeah. you know like i really wish we could go back and do something about the passenger pigeon or the blue pike or Mm -hmm. the dodo bird you know or all these other things carolina parakeet yeah 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 yeah. right you know but we didn't we didn't have the knowledge back and, then and we can't know. go back yeah, so we yeah. have to worry so it's like what do we what do we do with what we have now yeah yeah we adapt know? our technology now that we know right and these are these are obviously hypotheticals this is yeah. past the point of theory opinion these now we're into the realm of hypotheticals meaning it's it's almost time to go <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so look we, at the time <laughs> <laughs> we can adapt our technology but anywho nehemiah it's about that time we appreciate you for coming on. Thank you Dr. so much. Dr. Jonathan yeah. Davis, it is very late. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Thank you guys for, for hosting me, and I'm excited. Uh, hey, this is a cool thing you guys do. Thank you. I didn't we know that this was that. happening on on campus. So yeah, this is kind of blown up out of nowhere, but we're glad to have you as a I'm glad when I get to like experience and understand a little bit more what's happening on campus from your perspective rather than the um, the professor Indeed. Of perspective. Course, of course, so. yeah. I work here, but you guys live here. (laughs) Thank you. Well, um, this is In Defense of Humanity. Um, Nehemiah Johnson, Ashish Miller, and Dr. Davis. Thank you again, Dr. Davis, for uh, appearing here. That's it. Goodbye.